folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and I think we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Thursday, August the 17th, 2017, and this is episode 2067 of the Survival Podcast. And if, since it's a Thursday, of course, it is a listener call show. This is where you pick up your phone, you dial the number 866-65-THINK. 866-65-T-H-I-N-K. Leave your question or make your point or whatever it is, and I'll get an email that'll have an audio attachment, and maybe you'll end up in a show like this. I got almost everything that came in this week uh, by that number on today's show. Did not go into the speak pipe today, but you can also leave me a message by speak pipe. I kind of go back and forth between those. couple questions came in this week. I have a question for expert council member, blah, blah. Um, I did find them. I did send them to the expert council. I am going to ask once again, please. I know some of you listen to some of the old, old, old stuff from like five years ago when we first started messing around with council, and we used to have you call in the questions. Please email them. I, if I find them when you call them in, I promise you I will forward them. However, not every single call gets screened. If you send me an email with TSPC expert in the subject line with your question for expert council members, then, you know, I can make sure that it gets there because they go into their own special folder where the calls go into their own special folder and they're two different places and the twain shall not always meet. Got it? All right, on that, before I tell you what we're going to talk about today, I want to make an announcement I made on Facebook, I made it on Twitter, I made it on the blog, but I realized, dummy, Jack, you didn't make it on the air. And a lot of people just listen to the show and don't use the other resources. We have a new expert council member. His name is Dan Orman. Dan is currently like running a grass-fed homestead, but that is not what we have him on for. I think we've got that stuff covered. Dan spent, I think, 13, it's either 11 or 13 years as a law enforcement officer. And uh, I have brought on Dan to answer your questions about law enforcement issues, uh, interactions with the police. If something happens and you'd like a law enforcement officer's opinion of it, because everybody's flipping their shit and saying it's this way, it's that way, you know, actual critical analysis of it, of it. Uh, I, I think Dan is very, very libertarian, almost anarcho-minded. And I had three people apply for this position because I knew we should have an, uh, a law enforcement officer to handle some of these issues and get that perspective. Uh, but also from the perspective of a liberty-oriented individual. And I think they all were, and I think they were all fantastic, and they all have really great credentials from law enforcement, plus the right attitude to be able to approach this from the liberty mindset instead of the, uh, what do I want to say, brainwashed mindset. The problem for the other two, they're both active duty. And that makes them have to be anonymous, it makes them have to hold their tongue, and it frankly makes them risk their careers by speaking publicly on a show like this. So I decided to take someone who had the experience yet had separated himself from the uh, the world and now could speak fully. And I did that for uh, uh, the reasons I just gave you, but also another reason. My wife was a nurse for over 20 years. You could not talk to her about chiropractic. You could not talk to her about vaccination issues and risks. You could not talk to her about alternative medicine. You couldn't do it. Today I would say she is one of the strongest advocates for examining those three issues because her livelihood is no longer dependent on her obedience to the authority within that system. I, I, having seen that with medical, which has far less repercussions for speaking out than law enforcement, I decided it was better to go with somebody who had separated themselves and can say whatever the hell he feels like saying as himself. 
And I thought that would be more credible with you guys as well. So Dan Orman is his name. He has been added to Meet the Expert Council page. And uh, I have one question for him so far, and I could use some more. All right. So what are we going to talk about today? Questions for me. I have proper use of Lichard Carry Pressure Canner. And some questions on that recently have come up about you know using it for meat and stuff like that. And you can, and I'll tell you all about that. I have another reason for uh, lost skills, and it's showing versus teaching by doing. And uh, it's not really a question. It's, a, it's somebody telling a story of what happened, but I'm going to extrapolate from what happened to part of why our younger generation and even my generation, Gen X, lacks some critical skills. And I, I kind of see, saw how it paled down through, and I think it's still going on now. Um, I have a question on transplanting seedlings. It's actually a pretty easy one, but it's very frustrating for the person asking the question. I have a question on kayak fishing and gear, and I have an assist on that one from my buddy David by instant message queued up over on my second monitor because uh, I'm not really a kayak guy, but I'm going to give it my perspective for some of the stuff I know about fishing gear. And I spent a lot of years before I moved here doing a lot of fishing in small creeks, doing hiking, so minimalist gear, and I'll you know, add to that someone who actually does a lot of kayak fishing, and I think we'll have a pretty good coverage of that one. Uh, I have a question on building a financial planning business. I'll do my best, but we'll see how limited I might be there. Uh, I have a success story on Berkey water filtration systems. I have a question about the shoe shine boy warning with cryptocurrency. What the hell does that mean? I'll tell you when we get to it. And I have a question like, could all of this chaos in Antifa and uh, you know, the white supremacists and all of the media attention and drumming up and making this stuff worse, could that have anything to do with the coming revolution in automation? Maybe, maybe not, but it's an interesting take, and it'll allow us to take another look at that issue from a different vantage point, which at this point, any different vantage point might be advantageous. All of that and more in just a bit. Before we do so, let us go ahead and take a uh, hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is the TSP Business Directory. Hey, if you own a business and you would like some of the best bang for your buck advertising you can get, like 60 bucks for a year, or five bucks for a year if you don't want anything special out of it, get listed in the TSP Business Directory. I'm going to tell you something. As an old SEO marketer, we do not know follow those links. A link on the Survival Podcast website is worth five bucks for six months or $60 for a year for a better link. Just the link. Plus, you'll reach all the members of this audience. And if you are a member of this audience and you're thinking about doing anything, you know, buying something, hiring somebody, get just check the directory first and see if there's something there that you can use or that you can benefit from or fills the need that you currently have. It's at tspbiz.com. Next up, HarvestEating.com. Not a week goes by that I don't do something with seasonings from Harvest Eating and Chef Keith Snow. Last night I made two really badass T-bone steaks from uh, the neighbor's cow down the road that I bought half a, half a beef from. Man, it was good. The new, uh, the new steak seasoning is just fantastic. And so I've used that. But Chef Keith also has a great podcast. And he has some great courses that teach you to be a better home cook. And you know I think cooking is a life skill. So check him out and learn more at HarvestEating.com. And remember, Chef Keith is a member of the Expert Council. And I can use some questions for Chef Keith right now. So if you have any cooking questions, get them sent in with TSPC Expert in the subject line to jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com. 
Next up, let's take a look at the year that was. The year that was the year 47 A.D. What the hell's going on? We are still in the soap opera that is ancient Rome. One segment from David Verne. It is called Britain Gets a New Emperor, contributed by David Verne. Later this year, Publius Ostrius Scapula is appointed as the new governor of Britain, and they got rid of him because nobody could pronounce his name. No, it doesn't say that. Okay, Tribes outside of the Roman-controlled area take the chance to launch attacks, thinking this new governor wouldn't lead a campaign at the beginning of winter. Scapula acts quickly and annihilates the scattered resistance, In order to prevent further uprising, he announced that all tribes under Roman rule must be disarmed. The Asini, a powerful tribe that has allied with Rome before any battles and were still at their full strength. Uh, they encouraged other tribes to join them and assembled in... I missed something there, huh? Must be disarmed. That's it. The Asini, a powerful tribe that had allied with Rome before any battles and were still at their full strength. They encouraged other tribes to join them and assembled in an area enclosed by a large earthen dike with a small entrance that would prevent the Romans from using their auxiliary cavalry. Scapula's army forces their way through the barrier at the entrance. It climbs over the walls. The Britons' defenses now trapped them in, and they were defeated. But the Essenes were allowed to keep their independence. Next year, Roman territory will reach Irish Sea, cutting off the Welsh tribes and the tribes north of the island. My take by David Verne. Scapula will continue the pacification of Britain in the following years. The chief leading the fiercest resistance against the Romans was Carteris, and he was now stuck in Wales, cut off from any political allies in the north. The Romans were the originators of the phrase divide and conquer. They were using it to great effect in Britain. The Romans had also another phrase, divide and rule. Uh, yeah, divide and conquer. I'm saying nothing about my take. I will leave you to take that for yourself. And with that, let's go ahead and get into today's calls. The uh, first one I have is a question on the shard slash, slash carry pressure canner, which is an electric pressure canner that, yes, is safe for pressure canning things like meats and low-acid foods when used correctly. Hey, Jack, this is Dylan. I have a question about the carry and shard pressure canner and how much steam should be coming out when it's canning under pressure. Um, I've had one of these for about a year and a half on your recommendation. It does great. Uh, I use it all the time. It's a, just a phenomenal piece of kitchen cookware. And the question I have is when I set it and I use it properly according to direction, it lets out a lot of steam through the exhaust valve um, compared to what I'm used to with a jiggler on a on a you know an all-American or a regular pressure canner. So just curious if if there's an amount that should be allowed there or Um, you know, I feel like maybe it's not pressuring up well. Um, again, I've had good results with everything I've canned, but I'm unsure if it should really be letting out this much steam. I don't know if I can't find any YouTube videos or anything to really show me what it should be looking like. If you have any answer to that, I'd sure appreciate it. Thanks a lot. You have a great show. Bye. Okay, so it's hard to actually know what your canner is doing without seeing it. So what I'm going to do is explain a little bit about this tool and how to use it properly for pressure canning and some of the safety features that are built into it and some of the things you might be running into. So I'm guessing here. Okay, so the, the, you'll, you'll see this sometimes called the shard canner and sometimes called the carry canner. And I think at this point you're now seeing it called exclusively, anymore anyway, the carry canner, and it's by shard. Now, it was either, I don't remember... And I'm not sure, but it was either that the Shard Company was founded by a guy with the last name Carey, 
Uh, and I think that's the case, and, and, and that's how that works. Or it might be that Kerry Company was founded by a guy with the name last name Shard, and they've rebanded the company. It doesn't matter. If it says Shard or Kerry, and it's the pressure electric pressure canner, it's the same one. Now, whenever I talk about this tool, I get people that are all butthurt, and they're listening to outdated government websites that were written before this thing even existed and before the other one that actually can do pressure canning, the Power Pressure cook, Cooker XL, ever existed. The, the, these, these sites don't know anything about these canners, and both of these canners are, are certified by their manufacturers to be safe for pressure canning. I no longer recommend the Power Pressure Cooker XL because even though it is like a six-quart or something like that, it ain't high enough to put... Uh, quart jars and you have to do pints so you can do four pints with the carry you can do four quart jars that makes a lot more sense to me so it's the one that I recommend when I talk about this again I get you you can't do low acid or meat and electric pressure stop it just stop it these companies have been making these products for a number of years There'd be a class action lawsuit so far up their ass they'd be able to feel the doctor's hand scratching the inside of their brain right now if there was a problem here. Okay, Heat is heat and pressure is pressure. And frankly, these units to me, when used properly, are safer than old school canners, both from a standpoint of making sure that things get done right and from an overall just safety of use and not like hurting yourself, like scalding the shit out of yourself with a blazing hot side of a giant all-American uh, canner. Which, by the way, I love all-American canners. I have one. Haven't used it much since I got my carry canner. Okay. So let's talk about how we do pressure canning without an electric canner for just a second. We lock down our canner. I'm not talking about all the procedures before. We've got the, the, the stuff's in it. It's hot packed. It's ready to go. Rings are on. Tops are on. Water's in the bottom of it. We're bringing it up to temperature. We lock it down. We do not put the petcock, which is a little weight that controls the pressure, on there until steam starts pouring out of there. We let steam pour out of there for a while, and then we put our petcock on there. The petcock starts going, pitch, 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 or spin, 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 or whatever the hell it does based on what kind of petcock it is. Again, that's a little weight that sits on the place, the only place that lets the steam out of the lockdown and otherwise sealed canner. We do this to purge the air from inside the canner so it's filled with nothing but water in the bottom, jars, and steam. No air. Now, it is likely that even if we didn't do that, eventually it would purge all of the air out anyway. But to be safe, we leave it wide open, we purge the air, and then we add the petcock. This ensures that when we can for the right amount of time, at the right amount of pressure, we'd reach a high enough temperature with the steam and therefore a high enough temperature in the food itself to kill all potential bacteria, specifically botulism toxin, which is the big one we're concerned about when we're doing low-acid things. Okay, The carry canner works basically the same way, but it has safeguards that won't let you do it wrong. So when you fire up your shard canner, you should follow the instructions, but basically when you're doing pressure canning, use a pressure canner setting and a timer. The timer should not start until the unit is determined you've done what you're supposed to do. So what you should do is the little petcock on it's a bit different than anything that you've seen on your standard pressure canners like an All-American. It doesn't easily remove. It turns sideways to an open position. It turns sideways to a closed position, a little swivel. You should set it in the open position. 
When it begins steaming, if you watch it, it'll eventually come up to something that looks like an error code. It'll say E10. When you then turn the petcock to the sealed position, it will then start building pressure. It will give a countdown from 10, 9, 8, all the way to 1 and 0, and it'll begin running the timer that you've set. And it is now pressurized steam. It is now doing what the canner is supposed to do to can it. And that is the way that you should do it. It does steam differently, and it does act differently than a rock or spinning petcock. Because it's a different type of petcock. It's more of a like that. And it steams out all sides, kind of evening like 360 degrees around this little round petcock. If, however... You do not set it to open, you set it to close. It will sit there and just steam its ass off. It will not begin the cycle unless the computer determines that it has been purged properly and then it will allow it to, it won't seal. There is a secondary release on the canner. And until it's purged, that seal won't seal. And instead of just steaming out the petcock, it'll steal out of that little release valve. And you'll think it's not working. It's working. It's preventing you from canning or running your timer without it being at pressure. This is why I believe it is inherently safer than your typical canner, because not only are you less likely to burn yourself or scald yourself, you're also less likely to avoid you know, doing the procedures the way that you're supposed to be doing. Because if you take a regular pressure canner and just throw the petcock on there before the steam starts coming out, it'll, it'll just start... And you're going about your merry way, and you haven't done the purging of the air. So this does it automatically. It has safety features. It has 10 safety features. And if you're just sitting there with it steaming and steaming and steaming and steaming and steaming, and you're never getting that E10 countdown code, you've never begun the procedure, and your timer shouldn't start. If your timer doesn't start, it's not working, and eventually the thing will just shut down. If it doesn't seal right, it'll shut off. If it loses pressure in any way and it can't maintain the pressure that's supposed to be maintaining, it'll shut off. It's computer controlled. It's extremely safe. I have a link in the show notes to it. When I first started promoting it, they were like 160 bucks and they were hard to get and out of stock. They're now 95 bucks with free shipping and they're widely available on Amazon. If you're looking to get into canning, I can't recommend the damn thing highly enough. But that's how to use it for all pressure canning. And then you need to follow an actual recipe for pressure canning for what you're doing, for the duration you're doing, and for the weight of the petcock. The, the reason I really recommend this one over the Power Pressure Cooker XL, in addition to the size, is it comes with two petcocks. A 10-pound and a 15-pound. The 15-pound one should be used to replace the 10-pound one if you're over a certain elevation, which I believe is 2,000 feet, but I'm not sure. Once you go above a certain elevation, you have to use more pressure to get the steam to go to the temperature that's necessary to safely process the food. Power Pressure Cooker XL basically says, don't use me above 2,100 feet or whatever it is. And the carry says, if you're going to use me above that, swap these to this other petcock. Just like your old school canners do. You have... The one I have has basically three different weights you can can at, and it's it's a rocker. It's not a rocker. It's more of a, a spinner, I guess you'd call it, like a puck is what it looks like, and you just turn it to whichever one you want, and based on how large the, the vent hole is that allows the steam to push it up and move it, 
determines how much pressure it builds and therefore how hot it gets depending on the altitude. Right? So that's the carry. And if you email me about how everybody's going to die and the world's going to end and botulism will rule all, I will delete your email because I'm done explaining this because flatly, again, this company would not take on this liability if they had not scientifically tested the equipment to be safe for doing this. And since this product's been around for about three years now, they would have already been sued into oblivion if a single case of botulism had occurred because their system was designed incorrectly. And if you get on me about it, I'm warning you, I will bring out the Harris. I will bring Harris back to flip his shit about this again if I hear from you on it. So if you want to hear Harris give you shit about this, go ahead. No, I really won't. Harris... Needs his blood pressure meds. Needs to calm down. Uh, don't make me stick the Harris on you. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Zach from North Carolina. I'm calling in today with a skilled and uh, hard uh, trade preparedness uh, success story. Uh, our diaphragm tank and our water heater and our water uh, our well system went out this morning. Um, our neighbor, in addition to farming tobacco and uh, raising cattle, also does plumbing on the side. He came to the house, uh, assessed the situation, and uh, rather than consent for us, he gave me detailed instructions on how I could do it myself. His exact words to me were, I was young and dumb once, and I had to learn it too. Uh, my neighbor gave us the instructions. I went to Lowe's, purchased the supplies he gave me, uh, brought the diaphragm water tank back to the house, the air tank back to the house, and uh, unbeknownst to me and unbeknownst to the neighbor, uh, plumbing has changed a little bit in the years it's been since the tank was replaced, rather than the, uh, where it hooks into the well, uh, where it hooks into the well, on the side, it actually hooks in on the top. So I had to audible and figure out how to plumb in a 90-degree turn. Um, but given the instructions he gave me and uh, the just putting two to two, two and two together like you teach on the show, I was able to figure it out and plumb in a diaphragm tank for our, uh, for our well. Um, we have water in the house again, and uh, I'm sure my wife's and be glad she's able to take a shower here in a few minutes. I uh, just wanted to call in and um, I just thank you for the preparedness mindset. And something like this, it's the um, probability that you're going to end running into with uh, something like that happening or like we had last month, have our water heater go out and happen to scramble to get that fixed. Wanted to say thank, thank you for your show and I uh, hope you have a good day. Thank you. So, look, I want to use this as a teaching moment on a totally different front for a second. That caller, to me, anyway, was a little bit difficult to understand. I tried to clean up as best I can with the tools that I have. I didn't understand everything that he was saying. I think that it's important that when you make a call, you know exactly what you want to say. You make your main point up front and then give details. That will help, too. Uh, but it's also important that you look, you know, you keep speaking into the phone, quiet location, and speak up as though you're in front of a room talking to people instead of letting your voice come way down, and then back up and then way down, and things like that. So, again, I did my best to clear that up, but I got the gist of it. 
something broke. He went to you know the old farmer across the way that knows how to fix shit. That guy says, well, I'm going to tell you what to do instead of do it for you. Go get this stuff. When he did that, it was almost everything he needed, but he had to call an audible along the way, make some adaptations, and get it fixed. And he was able to fix it. And now he not only has the repair done, he not only has to spend a large amount of money to get some guy to do it, but he also has learned from it and will be able to do it again in the future if something goes wrong. And he probably will be able to do other things from the experience by extrapolation. Great. But this is exactly why we have so many people that can't do Jack Diddley shit. And I'm going to give you the generational breakdown and how it happened. My father's generation, which is a baby boom generation, I would also say that maybe we should give them some due respect because they really screwed with their life and call them the Vietnam War generation. Because um, those are the people that either were drafted or volunteered or someone they cared about and loved was drafted or volunteered. All right? So... They came up in a world where they were raised by the World War II generation who just knew how to get shit done. And that generation basically taught them how to do things. But they also came into a world where everything changed and everything accelerated. Mom was no longer in the home. Mom and dad both worked, two-income households, two cars, Just that alone, more maintenance. The cars got more complex. Prosperity also plays a place in this. People made more money. It was more prudent to get somebody to fix something. But when you did fix something, you just didn't have time to dick around with it. So you just fixed it. And if you were going to teach your kid how to do it, you said, come over here and look at this. And you did it. And when the kid got older, you said, well, you've seen me do this enough, go do it. Now, the kid had no damn clue how to actually do it because instead of taking the time to walk him through it, you just showed him how to do it. And that was my generation, right? Like we, Or that was my dad's generation. Um, that's what they did to us. So the, the, his father showed him and made him do it. He showed me and then said, go do it. But the time between those two instances were, were different. So instead of saying, come over here and do this, Right? Oh, pick that up, put that on, do this. That's how my grandfather taught my dad. My dad taught me by saying, hey, come here, look at this. See this? Because I, I, I got time to screw with it, but I want you to see how to do it. So he did it. All right? So then what would happen eventually, he'd say, go fix this. And I would, like, because we grew up in Gen X, pretty much we're the latchkey kids. We, we raised ourselves. We had an attitude, and we, had all, we, we screwed with everything. We messed with everything. We figured shit out. There was no computers. There was no YouTube. There was nothing to like suck our time up like that. Maybe we played some Atari video games. But that got boring after you defeated all ten levels or whatever. And there wasn't just another game out every week, and you couldn't afford it anyway. So we got on our skateboards, our bicycles, we went in the woods. So when your dad said, hey, you can fix this, you said, oh, all right, damn it. kind of remember what he did. And you, you fumbled through it. And you'd go back and say, hey, he'd say, hey, dumbass, you know, you know what you're supposed to do with that. And you'd, ah, no, I don't really, but we figured it out. And mostly alone. So we ended up with an expectation that, well, that's how kids learn. But we, because we were shown at one point and then told to do it at the other point, we didn't really get the connection that, hey, we did have more instruction than we think we did. So we expected our kids to just do shit. And we got even dizzier. We got, the Gen X is probably, so far, 
the most prosperous generation in the last 150 years. We're the programmers. We're the entrepreneurs. We're, we're the, the sales executives. You know, I mean, we had a different type of prosperity. Far more white collar than blue collar. We got even busier. And we remembered... Like, when you had to do all this shit and we didn't really want to. So we came we came to two things we did. One, we just called the guy. Or two, we just fixed it. We didn't even call the kid over to look at it because the kid was playing a video game and he's finally not crying. And damn it, I just need this fixed so I can get back to my work, my real work. And then we said, well, they can't do anything. Well, we didn't teach them. And then when we did teach them, We'd say, well, you just do this, 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 and this, and go do it. We didn't kind of guide them through the process and lay it all out for them. I'm not saying to everybody, I'm saying as a generation. So now we have millennials that are raising, you understand that millennials have kids. Millennials are not the fifth graders in school right now. Those are the children of the millennials. The oldest millennials are like 36-ish. So now they have no frame of reverence at all. So do you know what they're going to do? In a way, they're turning back to the... They're going to have to figure out shit when they don't have someone to do it for them. And they're going to teach their kids the way our grandfathers taught our fathers. So give them a break. But I think this is a, a, a benefit to us all. It's so easy when you are a parent or a grandparent and you have something that needs to be done to, to do it as quickly as you can. Instead of evolving younger people and actually putting their hands on it and walking them through it, well, they'll mess it up. Is it going to electrocute them? Is it going to explode? Then take it away from them. If they're going to skin their knuckle, let them skin their knuckle. If it's going to take a little longer, let it take a little longer. If eventually you have to say, let me show you how to do it, do it. I'll give you an example of this. My farmhand, Cody. It's like the second time I had him here working. I needed to change the starter motor on my tractor. I made him do it. Now I did it a couple. I did some things to prove to him that they could be done because he actually didn't know how a ratchet worked. He did not know what a ratchet was, and the housing of this starter motor—it's not like your typical car that goes in horizontal. It goes in vertically and over to the side, and there's two bolts that hold it into the motor housing, very similar to the the, the vertical mount that you might be accustomed to on a car if you are at all. But when you're doing bolts like that, you get these long bolts, and they're going to this engine block, and you got to kind of move it with one hand and feel it, and then catch that bolt and get it started. So he was fumbling and couldn't do it. I did, it won't work. So I picked it up, boom, boom, and got both of them in like that. You know what I did? Instead of handing him the ratchet, tell him to tighten it. I undid it and made him do it. And eventually I took one of his hands and put it on the bottom of the thing. I took his other hand and put it on the bolt, and I made him feel what I was doing. And then it started, and he's like, oh, get, no, 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 out it comes. Now do it again. And I think this is the, uh, I think on some levels this is the grandfather intelligence gene that doesn't get activated to become a grandfather. Like, I never had the patience to do that with my son. I, you know, I'm sad to admit, be that detailed with how to do something. And the reason I'm telling you guys this, that are young fathers, don't make that mistake. Because when they're 28, you can't. They won't listen. They won't listen, right? Because you didn't ever do it when they were 8 or 10. And doing it with a friggin' 17-year-old kid is hard enough. But since he's not yours, he'll listen, right? So 
I think we really need, especially with mechanical and hard skills, to go back to teaching by guiding the person through doing it rather than showing them how to do it or expecting them to learn on their own. Not that you can't learn on your own. And God, with YouTube, you should be able to learn anything on your own. But there is something, you know, when you see, because I showed him, and see, that's what YouTube is. I showed him five or six times. This is how you get the bottom. This is in this, And there's, if you guys have ever done mechanical work, you know, you get to a point where when you're trying to get a bolt or a screw or something to line up, sometimes it's really a pain in the ass, but in the end, there's a touch, there's a feel. It's a skill. As stupid as it sounds, it's a skill. And you can only learn it by doing it. Just some thoughts. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is uh, Chris from Ohio. Uh, question for you. Uh, probably a real simple one for you, but I want to ask anyway. Um, how do I keep my plants from being killed or almost dying when I transplant them from seed starters, uh, pots, or just regular-sized uh, plant pots into the ground outside. Um, background is uh, just trying to get my uh, feet wet with gardening here, um, and uh, uh, just been having some trouble uh, transplanting them. Uh, it seems like they al almost always die or come close to dying when I transplant them out of the pots into the ground. Uh, they're super healthy in the pots and they grow up nice and tall, you know, in the, uh, under the, under the, uh, grow light and everything, water them just fine, but, uh, I, I'm, I'm thinking maybe I'm destroying the roots or something that have been established when they get in the ground and then they either make it or they don't, but if that's the case, if you think that's the case, you have good recommendations on how to prevent that. Uh, sure, I could Google it, but I kind of want to hear perspective, so. Thanks a lot for your time. Uh, I've been listening since episode 50, so, uh, Love, love, love the show. Keep up great work. Have a good one. Thanks. Well, I'm going to start out with it's not uncommon. It definitely happens, and you shouldn't beat yourself up for it. There's a few things to look at. Number one, it is August 17th. If there is a worse time to transplant seedlings out into a garden, I don't know what it is. This is what my grandfather used to say. It's dog days, right? It's do dog days. Don't touch the dog. It'll bite you. It's hot. Dog days. Um, it is. It's hot. And so it is probably the worst time of the year for transplant shock. However, some of the things that you might want to have in for a fall garden, this is kind of sort of the time they need to go in. Right? Maybe a couple more weeks would be a little easier, but, you know. But this is also a problem any time of year. So let's examine what's really going on here. So I'm I'm growing this plant. And this plant is in a little pot, a peat pot, a cell pot, a four-inch square, a four-inch or three-inch round, whatever. It doesn't matter. And I have it in a little perfect soil. And I put a little seed in there. And I keep it perfectly moist. And I turn that wonderful Kingvo grow light on, and it gives it a perfect, beautiful light spectrum, exactly what it needs. And it's never too hot, and it won't burn. And that light comes on in the morning, goes off in the evening, and never dries out, never gets too hot. It's probably sitting inside a house that's sitting there about 70, 70 to 74 degrees, if you're like me, 69 sometimes, because I turn the air conditioner down just to piss off the freaking Uber left that thinks I'm killing the planet. I, I don't really do that. I do it because it's friggin' hot out and I like to be cool. But anyway, so it, it's in that environment. And it's think of it like a baby, like an infant baby that was born premature and put in an incubator. 
But that was kept in the perfect conditions of an incubator long after it really needed to be in that incubator. And instead of taking that baby out and wrapping him up in a blanket, put a little cloth diaper on him and taking him around the house and making sure he's all taken care of, you take him and throw him out in the middle of a field when the sun's up and it's 95 or 100 degrees out. What happens to the baby? You stupid ass, the baby dies. Okay, That's, that's your plan. That's your plan. So what, what I'm really saying is you've taken this plant that's three, four, five weeks old, depending on what it is, and you've taken it from a place where everything is perfect all the time, and you've gone straight out into the wild, so to say, where lots of things ain't perfect. So what happens? Well, it dies. It's like the baby out of the incubator. Because it didn't get what's called the hardening off period. So here's my rules for transplanting. Number one, do as little disturbance to the roots as possible. Some people say tease the roots out. more. No. Don't mess with the roots. So one of the things you need to be looking at is are your started plants developing a sufficient root system so that when you pop them out, You have to actually kind of come out as like a plug. And if you want, you can just at the very bottom, take your finger and open up the roots just at the very bottom. But I'm talking about a quarter inch of soil off the bottom. But it should kind of hold together. If you're getting somewhere, you pop it out and the dirt just falls off it, then for one reason or another, you're not developing enough roots. And it's probably two things. It's probably overwatering and too much fertility. We don't need nor want a lot of fertility in starting mix. And we don't want to fertilize it because we want the plant to go, I need nutrient, and just like make as many roots as possible. The other thing is some seedlings actually will benefit. This is especially true when they start to put on, you know, if you grow them up a little bit bigger like peppers, you might even prune them back a little bit so they get stocky. Stocky plant, stocky roots. Spindly plant, spindly roots. So if we have stocky roots, we're halfway there. Now, if we take that beautiful stocky roots and we put it out in the middle of a garden in the middle of the day and the sun beats down on it and dead, doesn't matter, even though we did everything right up to this point. We need to wean this plant off the incubator. My personal way that I do this is I take all the plants that I want to plant, let's say, on a Saturday. And about Wednesday... I put them in a heavily shaded area in their pots, and I make sure, damn sure, they don't dry out. But they go outside, so they're no longer in the perfectly controlled environmental room that is my office or my, you know, whatever room I have them in, extra bedroom. And I let them start to just live outside. That's kind of the first step. Because they get used to the temperature fluctuations, the difference in humidity, the not-so-perfect lighting. And what I'll do is I'll go out in the evening when there's about an hour left of daylight. And I'll give them a good watering so they're not going to dry out. And I put them right out into the bright sunlight for one hour. All through that week. And then I'm going to want to plant them, if I'm going to plant them Saturday... I'll plant them Saturday evening when there's about an hour of light left. So they're not going to be beat down by the sun. And then I'm going to look at my, sh my shadows and I'm going to set up something 
to shade them about 70% of the day the next day. I'm only going to let them get sun maybe in the morning when the sun comes up, and I'm going to shade them all the way till like, they're not going to get any afternoon sun at all. The reason I'm going to do afternoon sun and hardening them off is it's, I can't, it's less likely I'll screw it up. It's a fail-safe for me. Here's what I mean. If I move the plants out of my shady little nursery area out into the sun in the morning and I start doing my shit and I forget and I go to work or whatever, then they're out there all day and they're going to dry out and they're going to die. If I put them out at the end of the day, the worst thing I can forget is to put them out. But the sun will go down and it'll be dark and they won't be out there no more. And hopefully in the morning I'll rectify that and move them in. So it's a fail-safe. When they're in the ground... The hottest time of the day is the end of the day, and that's the last time we want sun on our plants. If you've done your garden right, if it's possible, you probably want sun for about 60% of the day and shade for about 40% of the day. And you want the shade in the afternoon. 60% of heavy sun is enough. But we're going to shade it so it only gets a couple hours. We can do that by taking something like lawn chairs and just setting it over top of it. Or setting some pots up and putting a piece of plywood over top of it. And we're going to give them a couple days in the ground mostly shaded. After a couple days in the ground mostly shaded, we're going to take that shade away. And we're going to probably take it away, you know, in the afternoon this time. And we're going to let it deal with what it's going to have to deal with come tomorrow. And then the next day, when the sun comes up, we're going to wash those plants. If they start to look like they're really suffering once they start getting hit with that sun, we're going to give them some shade again. We might even do something like build ourselves some portable shade netting. Now, you can do this with, like, um, PVC pipe and basically build like what would be like a little, like a little, think of it like a little low chicken tractor and cover it with something like 30 or 40% shade cloth. Really, really inexpensive. Really light, can move it around, and when we put new plants in, we can just set it over top of it. There's a lot of different ways we can do that. We can build a frame out of one-by, you know, really lightweight wood, just nail gun it together with a brad nailer, bam, 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 and we can do the sides, or we can just do the top so it gets some sun from underneath, which is a really great way to do it. The lower we keep it, the less side sun will come in, and we're going to wean those plants off. Do we always have to do this? No. Do we have to do this in August? You bet your hairy ass we have to do this in August. If we get into late spring, midsummer, end of summer, we have to take this now. Where you live, how moist your soil is, what kind of shade you have on your garden for the afternoon, how deep your soil is, how well, you know, if you have a misting system, a drip system, all these things will mitigate how much love and tenderness we have to give the plant hardening off. Some people will do it as simple as this. They'll take the plant in the evening, they stick it in the ground right out of from wherever the hell it came. And they'll take and put something over top of it for one day and take it away the next day. And that might be enough. You have to watch your plants and determine by season and variety how much hardening off you need to do. I've seen people just take a bucket and put it over top of the plant. Like a white five-gallon bucket. Now, if you do that here, you will cook it because it will get to be 100,000 degrees. But in some places where it's actually cool, it'll kind of act like a greenhouse and warm it up, yet it'll reduce the UV impact and help it do that. They'll do that for one day. 
I've never seen that work for me, but I've seen it work for other people. Because the white five-gallon bucket lets the light through. I, again, I, I the first time I saw somebody do it, I'm like, you're going to kill the plant. And, like, it didn't. They're like, I'll try that here. <laughs> Dead, right? But one way or another, you got to give it a weaning off period. And that's probably your biggest problem. But the other thing is, if you're popping your transplants out and all the dirt just falls off and you have really spindly roots, you need to kind of look at, are you watering too much? Have you not given the plant enough time to fill its roots out? Or are you giving it fertility when you shouldn't have been giving it fertility yet? All right, let's take another one. Hey, Jack, this is Carlos from Hot Springs, and I've got a question on kayak fishing. Uh, details, I just got a kayak and want to uh, rig it up for some uh, fishing on it, and I know space is limited, and what would you suggest uh, I should take and what maybe I should leave off the boat? Uh, thank you. Have a good one. Bye. So I've actually only fished out of a kayak a couple times, and it was kind of like impromptu type stuff, and uh, I do have some thoughts on that. I also spent a lot of my life, um, especially when I lived in the Northeast, doing a lot of fishing in very small creeks where I was hiking in long distances. Uh, so that's minimalist, so I'll try to apply that. But I just happened to be instant messaging about setting up, we're going fishing tomorrow, me and a buddy of mine, and he fishes in a kayak quite a bit, so I said, hey, What are your thoughts on this? And I'm reading straight off his instant messaging here. Uh, he says, you need your kayak and a paddle. Collapsible pole is best. Uh, I would say two of those because when one breaks, you have another one. Uh, limit tackle to what will fit in your short pockets or a small pouch. Stringer and a multi-tool and a Glock. <laughs> um, obviously, headlamp at night, and I always take a small uh, filter. Um And uh, I just uh, just rated flotation devices as seat cushions so I don't have to stow a life vest. So basically a seat cushion underneath your ass for your, your flotation device. Uh, big believer in being minimalistic. Your EDC, EDC gear should be able to handle the majority of your basic needs. I totally agree with that. So you should only add what you absolutely have to, your pole and tackle. If your EDC can't handle basic tool requirements, might be time to readdress your EDC. I agree with all that, and I'll add some other things to it. So, number one, when you're in a boat of any kind, but specifically something that would make having like a net difficult, if you're going to be fishing for fish that may require a bit of careful handling, let's say. They're a little bit larger fish. Big bass, if you're saltwater kayaking, snook and things like that. Landing these fish can be really, really difficult. And I believe in preserving the ability to, to catch and release. Because even if you're a person that fishes for food, you occasionally catch things you'd prefer to release, but you'd also like to land it and not have it leave with your lure or your hook or whatever. So I think a fish grabber is a really great tool to have, period, but certainly in a kayak. And I think the best way to use that is to, to rig it up some way with a, you know, like a clip-on or something where it just hangs off one side of your boat. And I think you should think about what side that is based on what type of fishing rod you're fishing with. And I'm going to assume you're right-handed, and you just switch this around if you're left-handed. If you're right-handed and you're fishing with spinning gear, which is what I fish with mostly, which means the reel is underneath the rod, and if you're fishing with it conventionally, you're fighting the fish with the rod in your right hand, and you're, you're reeling the reel with your left hand, I would say you want to hang that on your left side. Because as you're guiding the fish, 
It doesn't matter what you're doing with your real real hand. It's your rod hand that's going to guide the fish, and that's going to let you bring the fish around and grab that um, that grabber very easily and reach in. If you think about just holding that rod that way and bringing it. Conversely, if you're fishing with a bait casting reel, where the reel's on the top, and if you're right-handed, you're, you're cranking with your right hand, you're fighting with your left, I think you're going to find it much easier to bring the fish around to your right side. And then even if when you're grabbing the fish, you want to hold the rod with your right hand, switching hands and reaching down. And I prefer to use my strong hand as my guide hand, and my weak hand as my net hand, or my grabber or my gaff hand. So I would, And I have a link to, like, you don't know what a fish grabber is, I just got a random link to a whole bunch of them on Amazon in the show notes. I've also seen some guys rig up some fishing kayaks pretty heavily. I've seen them with like a freaking trolling motor on them and a freaking fish finder. And, you know, nothing against that. But if you did want a fish finder, I found a product I like. I've been thinking about bringing it out as an item of the day. But I haven't put it really heavily through its paces. And the reason is, the one pond I've really tried it on, turns out the whole damn thing's about three and a half foot deep at the deepest point. Well, it really kind of starts to shine at four foot of depth and deeper. Or at least have enough change in depth that it can show it to you. So I haven't really put it through a lot of its paces, but it's called an eye bobber. And I was turned on to it uh, by Patrick Rorman. And this thing works. You just attach it to your rod and cast it out. And it uses an app for your iPhone or your galaxy or whatever, and as you reel it in, you map the bottom, and it does find fish as well. And I've tested it up to see it does show you fish. Um, I don't think it's that great of a fish finder, but what it really is good for is where are holes, where are ledges, what the structure's like underneath. So if you wanted some way of mapping terrain, I'd recommend that because it's about as big as a big bobber. So it doesn't take up a lot of space. Um then I think you have to determine a lot of this based on what you're fishing for. You know, if you're fishing for bass, you know, there's a different set of artificials than if you're fishing for trout. So that was going to dictate, like, how you're going to manage your tackle. Yeah, I agree with that, but it should fit, fit in a pocket or two or a small pouch or something like that. But what you're going to hold it in, what have you. And if you're a bait fisherman, then I think it makes sense with if you're a worm fisherman to get yourself one of the I don't remember exactly what they're called I'll see if I can find one on Amazon for you but it looks like a little cooler and both sides open it's made out of styrofoam they're about oh or smaller than a lunchbox I'll put it to you that way and that way you can open either side and your worms get to the bottom and that's going to keep worms alive a lot longer if you are somebody fishing with minnows then obviously you'd want a minnow bucket that would hang over the side of your boat And I agree with Dave, but a stringer, you know, you don't really want to, you're not trying to put a live well in your uh, kayak. But this brings me to one big thing. If you are fishing somewhere where there are alligators, really be careful with a stringer. If you are fishing somewhere where there are snakes, specifically water moccasins, be careful with a stringer. I have pulled up a stringer of bluegills with a water moccasin hanging on the end of one of them, trying to swallow it. Um... <laughs> It happens. It, it's not a huge concern, but it's just something to be aware of. And that's the same thing. Like, kayaks are low to the water. Like, you can usually just lay your hands in the water. So just keep an eye on what's around you. And, you know, follow up my comments earlier this week talking about, you know, being in canoes or kayaks or whatever, where alligators are. If you're where alligators are, don't freaking corner them. 
and don't mess with them. If you see them, don't go running away from them or nothing, but don't go engaging with them. Uh, and then another thing is, the lakes around here anyway are full of green water snakes. Nerodia, Radicia, something like that. Nerodias, okay? These are big, large-bodied aquatic snakes. And they often, like, hit the, the bank and they come swimming. And a lot of times they'll swim right out of boat or whatever, especially in the back coves and all. Just don't do nothing. They're not going to bother you. I've seen people hurt themselves, freaked out, because they thought they were being charged by a freaking snake in a kayak. Snakes don't charge kayaks. They don't. Snakes don't charge anybody, especially water snakes. All right? And just because it's black or dark colored and in the water does not mean that it's a water moccasin, a.k.a. cottonmouth. Those are actually one of the easiest snakes to identify. And there's a lot of water snakes, specifically Nerodia and uh, I can't remember the Latin name, but Diamondback water snake, green water snake, both have very strong mimicry, but they really don't look anything like it. You know, So don't react to snakes, I guess would be my last thought on that. Let's take another one. This one on financial planning as a as a business. Hey Jack, Josh out here in the North Atlanta suburbs. The uh, the information you gave to the guy on permaculture design stuff was spot on. So I got a question for you, man. Uh, I've been in the financial planning business about 20 years, and I'm uh, about this close to start my own shop, and I'm very excited about that. Nervous, of course. Um, but, man, you got a special take on uh, marketing. I just wonder if you were any advice on starting it, and I know this is kind of a niche and you know, might not appeal to the bulk of your audience, but, hell, I'll ask you because you have expertise. On uh, starting a financial planning business, uh, target would be you know families, you know, 40, 50 years old and stuff with kids and whatnot, college, life insurance, the whole thing. Do not want to manage money like John Pugliano does. It bores me. Uh, makes my eyes glaze over, frankly. But uh, very interested in hearing your thoughts on developing a business specifically to that. And you know, again, I know it's not going to appeal to the bulk of your clients, but uh, the stuff you had on the permaculture design uh, stuff was was spot on. I actually learned a lot from that. So anyway, if you give me some uh, feedback, I love it, man. Thanks. Bye. Okay, so this is a difficult one for me, and it's why I'm going to do it. I'm not doing this one because I think I can give you a good answer, because I want to challenge myself a bit and, and try to help you, even though I'm not sure that I can. Full disclosure. So part of why this is hard for me, and I don't want you to think I'm crapping on your profession or anything, but I do call a lot of financial um, financial planners financial liars, right? I mean, I, I, if you're not going to manage my money, I don't... For me, it's hard to understand what value you're bringing to me. Well, you should put 10% of your money here, and this is your 401k, and this is you know this is this is your IRA, and this is your someday money, and your never money, and this is your you know, life insurance and all. And I guess it's hard for me to understand the value you bring because I can do all that for myself real easy. It's actually pretty hard, fast, easy to understand rules for all that. So my my concern with my wealth. And how I have it managed is you better damn well know when to move my money. You better damn well know how to protect my money. You better damn well know how to secure my money. You better also know how to recognize really good opportunities for my money and move my money into those opportunities with mitigation of risk at the same time. That's really more of a money manager type situation. So, I have a bit of trouble understanding what exactly makes a person a financial planner, right? Um, 
from a standpoint of no longer working for a firm. So I imagine you probably have some autonomy. You probably work with someone like Edward Jones or, or Ameriprise or you know uh, American Express or something like that. Where you know they do certain things for you, they throw you some leads and stuff like that, but they're also you know putting you under sales pressure and what have you, and you know limiting some of the things you can and cannot do for your clients, etc. Ignazium. But the other side of it is, you basically take a profile on the person and provide it to the company, and they provide a recommended portfolio and then you put them into that and once every year or six months you have a conversation which is really relationship sales to make sure that they don't jump off of the cliff and go their own way and they stay the course etc and continue to invest in and what have you so that's how i understand financial planning because the people that i've worked with albeit briefly that's what they did and i didn't really feel that they brought me much value And in all instances, when I've said things like, well, I actually see a major correction coming to this sector, and I'd like to get out of it, they usually try to talk me out of it, and then the major correction comes. And fortunately, I usually say, just put money in cash since you don't know what else to do with it, and they had done that. And then when I say, like, I think now that sector's taking a beat and it's time to go back into it, they want to go off and do something else, or they want to do whatever the head office says. So with that being my experience... I still think I can help you because here would be my, if I was sitting down with you and we would not be talking about managing my money, but I was talking to you about doing what you want to do, building your own career. These are the questions I would ask you. So who's going to handle the back end now? And how is that different from who handles the back end at this point? When you change, how is the, what difference will there be in the back end handling of making trades making buy and sell orders and stuff like that, what have you. How is that different? Okay. And then I would say, so what value do you bring me? And I would have to say, don't, don't get intimidated that you're talking to me as Susie and Tom Homemaker, who could just say the hell with this and buy their own mutual funds and life insurance. What value do you bring me? And you got to really think about this, because if it's just, well, I'll tell you how much of your, you know, how much to, to insure your life for, and what type of life insurance to use. It's not exactly that difficult to figure out, you know. And you, well, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll put you in growth and income and this and that. And I mean, all that stuff's pretty boilerplate, but the average person's not comfortable just doing it on their own. So, what I would say is, you have to articulate your value add to your market in a way that makes your market understand why they need you or why it's good to have you. Because I actually think most of you, and I know I'm going to piss you off, but I'm sorry, and, and this is important. If I'm wrong, this is even more important. I feel like you don't do very much. I feel like all that you really do is convince me to use you You park my money into something you consider relatively stable and good for the long term, and then you don't really do anything after that unless some super alert comes up where you really believe, uh, like say I'm in a, a, a mutual fund that's heavy into banking stocks and you think the banking sector is going to take a bath, you might say let's move into a different fund. 
right? So if you do more than that, then your marketing needs to articulate what makes you valuable and what makes you different. And I don't know what that is. So that's what your challenge is. Your market doesn't know what that is. Now, your market might be different than me as an individual. I may not be who you're looking for, right? But yeah, I mean, the kind of the age demographic, the wealth demographic, et cetera, of what you're looking for, at least it's what you say you are. So you have to tell them, what makes you different than an Edward Jones? You know, spun up, rolled out, here you go, relationship salesman. What makes you different than someone that, you know, works for American Express? What makes you different now that you've stepped? I mean, I know what it is. I know what's different for you, but what's different for your client? What advantage do I get? And I'm not saying there isn't one. I'm saying that's what you need to identify. We're back to the same thing I said on the last one you're asking about. Features tell, benefits sell. Do you have a track record of making better returns for your clients than the average person in your firm? That would be important. Now, here's the challenge. There's a whole shit ton of restrictions about what you can say and do and market in this world doesn't exist hardly anywhere else. When it comes to investing, how you market yourself, etc., is, is totally different. Some of the most effective marketing that I've seen, though, when it comes to financial planning, financial management, insurance, mortgages, anything in this world, has been people doing 30-minute to one-hour radio shows on AM radio on weekends. That might be something to look into. The, my two AM radio stations I'll listen to here in Texas, most of the time if I listen to AM radio when I'm in the car, 570 and 660. I listen to 1080 once in a while too. All three of them, all weekend long, are jammed with nothing but insurance, investing, etc. Mortgage hour, financial planning hour, all of it, nonstop. Now, here's the thing. I don't really listen, but I'll, I get in there and I thumb through it and see what's going on. Same people, been doing it for years. If it wasn't working, they wouldn't be doing it. So you might find some of those and see how those guys are acting. Specialization in certain things is, is a good way to go. Some of these guys, what they're doing, they're not saying I'm here for everybody. They're saying we are here for people that are 10 years out from retirement and they need to get more conservative and they need to think about long-term income and making sure they're going to be able to enjoy their retirement and seeing if maybe they need to work a year or two longer or seeing if we can have them work a year or two less. See, now when you hear that and you're that, that speaks to you. Well, that'll turn everybody else off. You don't care. You don't care. In fact, if you want You can have marketing for those other people, too. Your marketing needs to be tailored to a niche. What you think is a niche isn't a niche. I just gave you a niche. Young people starting out is another niche. right? What everybody wants in your market is the 45-year-old with a half a million dollars already there. Just sitting there in a 401k at some job he left it behind at, and all you got to do is roll it over and start collecting fees on it. Well, that's what everybody's after. I'm not saying don't go after it, too. I'm just saying, like, it's it's the whale. It's the elephant. See, what it makes me think of is in Africa. 
you know, all the way up from the, 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 the golden days of Africa safaris and all, all the way into like the 50s before things really went downhill from overhunting, there was a gun called a drilling. And this gun, a lot of people think, was just for shooting elephants or, you know, rhinoceroses or leopards or something. And it would have something like two really heavy rifle cartridges, like a 9.6 millimeter rimmed cartridge. It was like an elephant, blow the elephant's head off with it, right? Um, and then underneath it'd be like a 12 gauge or a 20 gauge barrel. And so that's like when you're going in the woods and there's a wounded leopard and you have buckshot in there, plus you have your rifle cartridges and yeah, that and yeah, but you know what else that was for? So that when the guy was out hunting a sable antelope or something like that and he needed to eat and they ran into guinea fowl, they could shoot him. And I think this is what a lot of people in sales don't understand. Some we used to call the gas money clothes. You need the little accounts and the big accounts, and you eat off enough of the little accounts in between the big accounts to make it sustainable so you can get the big accounts. So if I already have a half million dollars sitting in management of whatever the hell kind of advisor or management I have, where it all just kind of sits in these funds, and the, the person you're, you're competing with just says, just leave it there, it'll be fine. This is all, you know, it's all allocated, broad-spectrum allocation. You've got growth and income. You've got emerging markets. You've got all this stuff. And you come to me and say, that's what you're going to do. Well, how the hell is that different than what I have right now? But if you tell me I'm here because you've had your money at risk long enough, that we need to start looking at transitioning to things that are more secure, more equity-based, what have you, and start actually planning toward decoupling from this system of risk because you're going to be in a position of living off your money, and my advisor's not telling me that, now I'm listening to you. If I don't have a lot of money, I'm just starting to save, and you say, listen, there's ways that we can manage what you're doing to increase what you're investing without hurting your, your, your budget at all from your living budget. And you won't feel any pain, but you'll be putting more away from your future, and I can show you how to do that. Now I'm listening. These are the types of messages that you need to be giving. Now, whether or not you can deliver on that, I don't know. But you need to find out what you can deliver, and you need to develop messaging like that. And that is not about financial planning. That's about any business that you go into on your own. That's how you make a compelling message to your market. So hopefully I did pretty good with that because I did not know what I was going to say when I started. Let's take another one, this one on Berkey Water Filters. Hey, Jack. This is Tyler in Ohio. I just wanted to get a comment about the Berkey system. Uh, about a year and a half ago, we went a week where we couldn't drink our uh, city water uh, just because it was high and I don't know what it was, but they said it was unsafe to drink. Uh, luckily, we had the water storage system, but after that, we didn't want to get caught with our pants down again. So we actually went and bought a Berkey system, and uh, my wife and I have noticed that there has been a much better taste in water since we've got that. Uh, since that time, we've actually got three letters in the mail saying that uh, there were issues with the water in the past and that we should see it. Uh, watch out for symptoms of issues with our water. But since we've been drinking the Berkey water the entire time, <clears throat> we have, didn't have to worry about that. And just, I guess, to give a plug that said, to say if you don't have a Berkey system, then people definitely need to get one. So uh, thanks for the show. Have a great day. Bye. I'll be real brief on this because it just, it just reinforces what I keep saying about water filtration. I do recommend Berkey. 
And I don't just recommend Berkey because Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason is my sponsor and has been for eight years, okay? Yes, I'm loyal to my sponsors and they're loyal to me. But I took him because I believed in Berkey when I took him. I've looked at basically other every other system that's available. And there's some good systems out there. You know, there's whole house systems. There's under-the-counter reverse osmosis. And they all work. I like, you know, when you start splitting hairs about what works better, they all work, and they all work damn good, and they all work, work to make your water safe. From economics, easy use, self-maintenance, Berkey wins, in my book. So if, if, if you don't want Berkey, then figure out what you do want. But I recommend to everybody on well or city water, have a Berkey because you don't know when your well's contaminated and you don't know when your city water's contaminated. And by the time you know it's contaminated, you've already been drinking contaminated water. It is, in my opinion, one of the dumbest things we do in America is to just, well, we don't need to worry about it. And it's because we have the luxury of our water being so damn safe most of the time. It really is. But it takes once. And I've heard enough stories of people ending up in ERs and them not knowing what to do and people being really sick, ending up with huge hospital bills, people dying. Uh, I mean, I've heard these stories, and I just don't think it's worth the risk over a few hundred bucks. So have some sort of water filtration purification system in place. If you want to choose something else, I don't begrudge that at all. Choose what works best for you. But, man, this is a hole not to leave in your preps. And this isn't just for when the shit hits the fan. This is for when the shit is actively hitting the fan and it's blowing shit all over you and in your mouth and you don't know it. I know that sounds gross, but when you start hearing, well, our water's been infested with E. coli for like, oh, I don't know, a month or now. We just figured it out. Start boiling your water until we fix it. What do you think E. coli comes from? Just saying. Let's take another one. This one is going to be on cryptocurrency and an interesting question I might have to explain uh, after the guy makes his case. Hi, Jack. It's Kurt from Tennessee. I had a thought on this crypto boom that's going on. I hear a lot of comparison between the story of Joe Kennedy and the shoeshine boy, but I'm thinking it might be less of a shoeshine boy handing out tips situation and more of a shoeshine boy accepting cryptocurrency situation. Take it easy. There's another one that's a little bit hard to exactly hear, but I think I got the point. I think what he said is it might be a little less of a shoeshine boy giving advice on cryptocurrency and a little bit more of a shoeshine boy finally accepting the, the, the validity of cryptocurrency. So to make this clear for those of you that maybe don't know the story, and I think this comes from my buddy Vin Armani. It might be one place we actually disagree on something. Because I know he told the story on a podcast about two months ago, and all of a sudden I started hearing it everywhere. Back before... The uh, Great Depression hit the stock market. Everybody and their mother was buying stock. Every, I mean, people that had never owned a stock in their lives. It was some only rich people that people were buying stock left and right, and the market was going up and up and up and up. And people were becoming millionaires overnight. And Joe Kennedy, old man Kennedy, this is John, this is John Kennedy Jr., John JFK and, and Bobby Kennedy and, and Ted Kennedy's dad, He'd made his money in bootlegging whiskey, by the way. You know, he was making that money nice and clean by putting it into investments and stuff like that. He was at New York, Wall Street, and he got a shoe shined. And this may or may not be a true story. Stuff like this gets embellished all the time. But the, 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 the point is valid. And, you know, he gives the kid two bits for a shoe shine or whatever, and the kid shines the shoes and gives, he says, Mr. Kennedy, I have a stock tip for you. Tells him what stock to buy. And old man Kennedy says, that's it, jigs up. 
and does not get hurt in the stock market crash because he takes his money out of the freaking just done. I'm cash. I got plenty of money. I don't need to risk this. I'm out. And then, of course, the market crashed and et cetera. And, and what Vin said is one of his friends or several of his friends that wanted nothing to do, didn't even know what cryptocurrency was, started giving him advice about the next new coin or whatever. And he had his Joe Kennedy moment, and it was time to get away from Bitcoin uh, and other currencies as well. And he said something, I, like one of the few things Vin Armani's ever said I really don't agree with, that, the, the, that he feels like Bitcoin's in tulip mania. When he said that, I went, really? A guy that thinks this much would even make that comparison? And I know sort of kind of what he's saying, but let me explain the difference between tulip mania and Bitcoin to you. And then I'll explain the difference between Bitcoin and the stock market in 1929 to you as well. And it's a numbers thing, different ways. So tulip mania was, of course, I think it was the 1600s, whatever it was, 1500s, 1600s. Tulips came to Holland. And the bulbs became worth ridiculous amounts of money. And the more rare the tulip, the color, the pattern, whatever, the more valuable the bulb was. And people were getting rich overnight. And eventually, of course, that crashed. And people went from being millionaires in name only because they were holding bulbs instead of money to broke overnight. And in the middle, some people made a lot of money. But when everybody jumped in, when everybody got involved... And, and, you know, people that were out barely ha having enough money to buy dinner that night were putting that money aside and buying one tulip bulb so they could make some money. That's when the market crashed. Okay. Here's the difference between tulips and Bitcoin. If you give me 50 tulip bulbs today, next year I can give you several hundred to several thousand because they produce through division. And anybody with dirt can make more. Okay. Bitcoin will only ever have 23 million Bitcoins, and it's a long damn time before we get there. And you can't just make more. Mining is inherently difficult, making the original cryptocurrency in Bitcoin a scarce asset. Okay? It is a scarce asset. You just can't make more. You can make a different coin. You can make a Litecoin, whatever. But Bitcoin is the king for now. Does that mean it ever could explode? No, but... And then the other side of this is, even when you factor in all of these coins, these other coins, ones that have utility and real value and ones that are just rolled up bullshit, their total market cap is a, 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 the turd of a gnat compared to one major bank, let alone one major stock, let alone the Dow Jones Industrial Average. It's microscopic. It's tiny. It's, it's infinitesimally small. And so to have the Joe Kennedy moment where everybody's getting in first would push the, the solid currencies like Ethereum, like Bitcoin, through the effing roof, something that you would you, you can't even get your eye around it. This is why people are making some pretty dumb statements, but I think uh, John McAfee said something like if... Uh, If Bitcoin doesn't go to $50,000 lead his dick, it might have been higher. I don't know. I'm not making a statement like that. But this is what the thinking is, that, hey, look, if you actually get a point where, and I've said this before, but think about this. What if 1% of the 
of, of the United States of America decides they want one just just one Bitcoin as part of their, their investing portfolio, just one. Well, let's start out with some hard numbers. Right now, there's about 16 million Bitcoins, okay? And you will not have the last one mined until 2040, but there will only ever be 21 million. So your growth between now and 2040 is only about 5 million more. Now, there's a whole bunch of people out with that 16 million that are holding and do not want to let go of it. If 1% of, 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 of America, just the United States, and just forget about all the international markets, 1%, and we round it down from 330-odd million people to 300 million people, 3 million people want one Bitcoin each. Right there, that would consume 18% of all the Bitcoin that exists right now, 18%. And 14% of all the Bitcoin that will ever exist. This ignores Bitcoins that have been lost forever. There's probably a million Bitcoins that are supposedly circulating that are gone. That are on somebody's you know washed up ass computer that they threw away when they never thought it was going to be worth anything. There's probably at least a million Bitcoins, at least a million Bitcoin out there that are not even there in those numbers. So tell me, riddle me this, Batman. If 5%, if 5% of Americans want to own one Bitcoin, what percentage of that is, the, is it in total circulating Bitcoin? It comes out to about 94%. If 5% of Americans want to own one Bitcoin each, you would have to consume 93.75%, that's rounding down, of all available Bitcoin to make that happen. So throw in Japan. Throw in South Korea. Throw in India. Throw in Russia. And say 1% of those people want to own one Bitcoin. So... My view is, it's not that this whole thing couldn't fall apart. It's not that something new might come out, be better, and replace it. It's not that there couldn't be another paradigm shift. But if it's going to be a Joe Kennedy moment, then there is going to be an unimaginable amount of wealth made by the people that are already holding. However, there probably will come that moment... There's going to be some point where holding the unknown versus converting to the known or some portion of the So there's this constant, this is just how these, anything like this works. There's a certain price where somebody goes, yeah, I'll take the money. There's always somebody on the other side of the trade, which is one of Vin's points, and I think he's dead on, but I think the concept that, like, this is tulip mania, that's the objection I heard eight years ago. And damn, I wish I wouldn't have listened to it then. I didn't really listen because I knew that didn't work out. Like, the fact that anybody ever thought investing in tulips was a good idea, it was just, what? Do you not understand how plants are propagated? I mean, really? Come on, right? Have you been to Holland? Like, see, this is the thing. Like, did tulips go away? No, investing in them did. Did the ability to make money with tulips go away? No. No. There are people that make millions of dollars a year right now with tulip bulbs. They just don't do it through speculation. Right, so I think you have to examine the whole sector. But I think 
anything approaching mainstream acceptance of use and holding and stored value and investing in cryptocurrency will make the current gains look like a joke. This is the thing. I'm not saying that's going to happen. You have to be careful. If you wouldn't risk, and this is where Vin and I go back to agreement, if you wouldn't risk the money that you have in cryptocurrency gambling with it, don't risk it on cryptocurrency. And I temper that with, but I don't gamble at all and I hold cryptocurrency. But I still put that money in that same classification. It's that same classification of money. Like, it is the money that I would take to Vegas if I would go to Vegas, but I don't go to Vegas. Right? So I'm very conservative with the majority of my wealth. But I see long-term potential for a lot more millionaires to be made in cryptocurrency. And I think it's still going to be Ethereum and Bitcoin in the near term that do the best for people. They really do. You'll have these like altcoins and stuff. They'll have these amazing run-ups. And the sticking is going to be tough. You're going to have to do something that other things don't, and you're going to have to make a utility that others don't have, and whatever that utility is, you're going to have to make an ecosystem that people want to use. I love the idea of Swarm City. If you make it where anybody can use it a hell of a lot easier and it doesn't require any kind of tech knowledge, you got something that's a lot more powerful. And that's what a lot of these things are missing. They're selling to the initiated. You're going to have to create something that sells to the uninitiated. That's why I like Dash, for one instance. They're at least trying to do it. Anyway, those are my thoughts. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, I have a little bit of a different take on all the chaos that's happening. Uh, I really believe that it's magician sleight of hand, that they're drumming up all the hatred to hide something else. And, and what I think it is is, when you had automation enter the agricultural, when everyone was in agriculture back in the early 1900s, they had manufacturing that the people could retreat to. Then automation and outsourcing killed off manufacturing. Well, then they had service industry that the workers could retreat to. Now we have automation appearing everywhere in the service sector, whether you're a CPA accountant or you're a waiter at Buffalo Wild Wings, doesn't matter but I don't see where there is to run. So, and I think that that's why you're seeing all this absolutely irrationalness on the news, and there's no other explanation for it. And the chaos, and they're just pumping up. They're pumping up Antifa. They're, you know, they're pumping up the right. They're calling all of us Nazis because they're trying to get us to hate each other because if we hate each other and we're attacking each other, we're not paying attention to the real problem. So... That's just a fellow duck farmer from up north's opinion. So I'd like to hear what you say about it. Of course, you did say you were done with the topic, so maybe this won't hit the air at all. Anyways, have a great day, brother. Bye. Yeah, I'm kind of done with the topic. Uh, on another note, just as I was listening to this, I just published um, the show that I did called The Shitstorm is Brewing, discussing the polarization of both sides um, when it comes to things like Antifa, Black Lives Matter, white nationalism, white supremacism, the KKK, all of that. The show I did on Tuesday this week, it's now out on YouTube uh, as a video, but it's just the, the cockroach slide as the one frame all the way through. And just all of the uh, commercialism, the ending, the beginning, all that taken out, just the meat of that show. So if you want to share that, it's about an hour long. It's available on YouTube now. Um, and I, 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 I can't 
I can't do this anymore with explaining to people how debating which scum is better scum is stupid. I can't, okay? But I can talk about the overriding issue here, and I can certainly talk about does, does automation play into this? I, I don't think it really does with the people that are doing this right now. I think with the invisible hand at the upper side, it may be part of the strategery, right, from a former president, the strategery of the chessboard, moving all everybody around. And by the way, this is how I feel about this. Just to really put this in perspective, if you are playing the game of choosing a side between Antifa and fascism or BLM, Black Lives Matter, which is a racist hate group at its core, and fascism, or Antifa, NBA, or any of these groups, you are a pawn on the chessboard. And let me ask you, what happens to pawns in the game of chess? It ain't checkers. They never make it to the back of the board and become a king. They are sacrificed. right? So playing that game is dumb. Again, in the words of war games, the only... The only correct move is not to play the game. But let's talk about it from a standpoint of like the motivation from the powers that be to, to lather this up. And could the coming shift to automation and the massive disruption have anything to do with it? Well, let me tell you that I think people like the George Soros's of the world consider all of these things and what they do. I think they're actually very intelligent psychopaths, which makes them very dangerous. They're wealthy, intelligent, detail-oriented psychopaths. Okay? Um, so sure, I think they're considering it, but I don't think that the shift is imminent enough to make the timing relevant to lathering something up like a Charlottesville. The people that are in power both the sub-bosses, which you call your government, and the oligarchy, which are the real bosses, the bankers, right? The people whose names you don't even know. For every George Soros, there's two or three guys that have more money and more power than him that you never see. Okay? And, they again, they play both sides. Certainly, they know, they know, with the technocratic innovations the disruption that's going to cause. But my honest feeling about these types of people is these disruptions, they don't care if they're connected, they care that they are. They care that they exist. So they don't care that they're connected, they care that they exist. Because it, it, it didn't really make sense the way I said it the first time. Whatever disruption comes, whether they've created it, or whether they've just simply agitated it, or whether it even caught them off guard... As soon as we start fighting, they start saying, how can I use this to advance my agenda? How can I use this to advance my agenda? You know, whether it's Standard Oil sitting right here in the United States of America selling oil to Nazi Germany when Standard Oil was being run by Prescott Bush, whose son, George W. Bush, was currently in the Pacific Theater fighting the Axis, risking his life flying fighter planes, and he was selling freaking uh, fuel additives to the enemy. Now, yeah, I know his son was fighting the Japanese and he was selling to the Germans, but come on. Come on, you're talking about splitting a freaking hair. 
whether it's that or whether it's, you know what, let's send our, our, our boy here, who has formerly been a correspondent for Occupy Wall Street, turn him into the head of the alt-right, unite the right movement, bring in some of uh, the low-life neo-Nazi true skinheads to hijack the already shitty white nationalist protest and make it even worse, and let's rile up our people at Antifa, and let's get a whole bunch of social justice warriors there, and let's send 30 or 40 Antifa hardcores in there to rile the whole thing up and cause a shitstorm. It doesn't matter. It's the same thing. You got to ask yourself, what do these people want? More control and more money. That's it. So the other thing that they constantly have to look out for, here's a lesson from North Korea and all this, and you wonder how does this come in. So you have to understand something about when Kim Jong-un says, we are going to nuke Los Angeles, or we're going to launch a couple missiles off the coast of Guam to prove we can do it, or anything that they say. What they're hoping is, we all go, well, they're not going to do that. I don't mean you and me. I mean, like, our government. The government of Japan. It's the government. So they don't want a war. They know they can't win a war. They Let me say that again. They know they can't win a war. North Korea knows it will never, ever, ever, ever again occupy the South Korean Peninsula. They know a reunified Korea, which is what most Koreans want, by the way, is the end of the North Korean regime. They know that. They know that if they push it far enough, the Chinese will not back them the way they did in the 50s. They know that it's a new world, that China sees us as a cash cow, and you don't kill your cash cow. They know they're effed. But you know what they don't fear? They don't really fear the United States invading them. They'll say that that's a threat, but they don't really fear it. What do they fear, though? They fear losing control. They fear regime change. They and, and where is the where is the biggest risk to North Korea right now? If you're Kim, Kim Jong Un and you're looking out at the whole world, who do you actually see as the biggest threat to your existence? Your own people. Your own people. Population of North Korea. Do you know what it is? 25 million people. Let's say I don't know. 20% of them say, we've had enough of this shit. We don't care if we get shot. We don't care if we die. We just had enough of this shit. You assholes have to go. You think you're going to stop it? H how many of their, their soldiers that are starving and have, like, that's their family out there and never, they're just going to go, yeah, just turn this around and point it over here. How do you maintain a totalitarian grip on a people like that? Well, you, you, you do it the same way that we do it here with our soft totalitarianism. There's enemies out there, and we're the only ones strong enough to protect you from them. So all of the bluster that North Korea does about, we will turn the cities of the United States into fiery hellstorms, they know they can't do it. And they know if they launched anything approaching a nuclear bomb on, a, on, on the United States territory or the territory of a United States ally, That even China would be like, oh, sorry, man. <laughs> sorry about your luck. And they would turn into an ash cinder overnight. They know that. They're not irrational people. They're very rational. They're scum, but they're very rational. What they want is to control their power base. So all of their posturing is not for us. 
It's for their serfs. So their serfs will... The, the leader is powerful. The leader will protect us. We've always been at war with West Asia. Right? Okay? Come on! Okay? Please, understand this. It's East Asia. No, it'd be West... I don't know what to call us. West... The West Continents, right? Right? We've always been at war with the West Continents, right? It literally is 1984. Okay. You can only watch the screen when it's, you know, got the, what the leader says, and there's one, it's, it's, get your haircut a certain way. These are actual laws in North Korea. There's only an approved number of haircuts for males and females. You have to get one of the approved haircuts. And, and the, the great leader's haircut is not on the list. I'm not making this shit up. Okay. What the hell does that have to do with things like Antifa and the KKK and then razzing this stuff up and whatever? The people in power fear one thing only, losing their control over you. And something like a new technological revolution that puts you know half of the workforce out of work without a solution... And there's only so much solution, and someone to redirect the anger out could threaten all of their control. So they'll use any disruptions. Why do you think you keep seeing the stupid shit about the reason there's kiosks at McDonald's is because people want $15 an hour for minimum wage, when the kiosks are coming well in front of the minimum wage adjustments? Because the kiosks are coming anyway. Whenever you see that, meet your replacement, $15 an hour, whatever, just realize it's bullshit. If minimum wage was $5 an hour, McDonald's owners would still put kiosks in. Because for the simplicity of the job, the kiosk does a better job, still more cost effectively. You could make it $2 an hour for minimum wage. In time, the technology will still be better than having the person... Because there's a point where if you drive the wage low enough, the performance goes low enough. They're, they're, we've reached a point where there's an impasse. So sure, they may do some of this, like creating this hatred, different groups of people hating others, because that is one of the big, huge, earth-shattering things coming, and they don't want anybody to look to them and blame them. Again, the timing's premature. I think like the people like the George Soros's of the world who are aggravating and instigating this have a totally different agenda than deflecting the blame for you know technological innovation. I think people like George Soros actually are looking forward to that because that is yet another step toward destabilization of the West and creating... See, what these people really want is they want... Socialism globally, which means instead of looking at the successes of modern nations like the United States and trying to bring everybody up, you know you can't have that many winners, so you drag everybody down to the same level. Except the elite. The elite always do well. doesn't matter. There's plenty of elite people doing very well in communist Russia. That's how it was maintained for so long. There has to be an elite class to maintain anything. The question is that elite class there by inheritance, i.e. birthright, or is it there through merit? You're never not going to have an elite class. 
But a well-run and fair society would have an elite class that is fluid and based on merit, i.e., when you cease to have the merit to be in the elite class, you fall and no one catches you. It's up to you to figure out what to do with yourself. That is what the elite always try to avoid, though, because the elite are never the innovators. The elite are, even if they got there by innovating, they reach a point where they stop. And when you start getting old money, i.e. trust fund babies, there's no, there's no innovation. What has Microsoft innovated in the last 10 years? It's truly been earth-shattering innovating, innovative. It's a, in, in this world, it's a brand new company, guys, and it's stagnant. Let's be honest. It's stagnant. Does some great things still? Stagnant. 40 years, stagnant. Stagnant as shit. Apple, yeah, had some shakeups and breakups and whatnot, so done some cool things lately. But man, I don't know. Other than a camera, my iPhone six is not or seven is not that much better than my own phone six was. Really not. Just saying, it's not. It's not completely changing things. They're not making the next disruption. And that's what the elite fear, these disruptions. So they want somebody to blame for them so they can capitalize them and continue to control you. So that's, that's what's always going on. And sure, all of these little things play into it, but saying it's the only explanation. No, the explanation for white nationalism and Antifa is that there's a whole bunch of people that are unhappy about the way things are and want shit taken from others and given to them communists, and there's a whole bunch of people that feel that their way of life and their culture is under attack and nobody will listen, and that gives you Black Lives Matter and white nationalism, black and white nationalism. That's, that's the, the explanation is people feel disenfranchised, and when someone's doing something really bad on the other side and they're given a pass... And someone's just trying to be heard and they're attacked for it. They become more radical. That's the explanation there. There's nothing confusing about it. All right, with that, guys, we are wrapped up for today's show. I want to remind you that one of the ways you can help support this show and the work that we do is by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. Whenever you want to shop on Amazon, just go to tspaz.com first and do your shopping from there. You help support the Survival Podcast and the work we do. The product that I have for review to you, for you today was one I brought out early this year. I'm bringing it back around because it's a great product. It's made by Anker, A-N-K-E-R. It's a 24-watt dual USB car charger. It's a little bitty thing. Plugs in your 12-volt plug in your car. Gives you two USB ports. Very, very fast charger. Um, it charges at the, the faster charging port, 4.8 amps, and the lower one at 2.4. It's 10 bucks. Most most $10 level chargers don't even charge the fast port at 2.4 amps, let alone 4.8 and 2.4. The other thing is this is an intelligent charger. Somebody already posted about, you know, because my here's my rules for your phone. You don't let your cell phone go dead. In fact, you keep it fully charged all the time. When you are home, you plug it in. When you are in the car, you plug it in, etc. Rule two, have multiple ways to charge your phone, especially in your vehicle. Rule three, you don't let your cell phone go dead. In fact, you keep it fully charged all the time. When you are home, you plug it in. When you're in your car, you plug it in, etc. You notice that rule one and rule three are the same? Yeah, that's on purpose. Um, somebody always said, you know, you can overcharge your phone, burn your battery, whatever. I believe in using intelligent chargers. 
that know to stop pushing pushing power to something when it gets there. This is an intelligent charger for ten bucks. This is an intelligent charger for ten bucks. I think you need to keep your devices charged, and I think when you when you pair this with something like um, a backup power source like the Anker Astro Seven uh, backup power pack, you've got a really great package put together. And then lastly, the reason I like to recommend Anker whenever they have something in the world of this type of electronics is I know that they are a company that if you do get a bad product and you contact them, they are going to replace it. They're going to make it right. They have fantastic customer support. I always try to bring you companies like that. So it is the Anker 24-watt dual USB charger. It is really badass. I say you should get one for both vehicles if you don't have one already. And if you think about it, The dumb chargers, they have little baskets and stuff, you know, at the front of like rental car places and all when you travel are like 10 bucks. And the cheap versions of them are like seven, eight bucks. They have no intelligence built into them. They're nowhere near as powerful. They're nowhere near as fast. And there's nothing to stand behind them. And if it breaks, you throw it away and buy another one that also may burn up your batteries. So check these out. Last but not least, let's talk about our song today. I'm jazzed. I am jazzed. I have never played Metallica on the show, and I'm going to be able to play Metallica for you today. In fact, this is the song that actually made me go, Metallica's great. I wasn't a huge Metallica fan right away. It wasn't really my style of music. Just a little bit too harsh at the time. you know. And I, I mean, even when I was a kid and I was into like rock music and stuff, I still had that country bent to me. Right, growing up partially in Florida. You know, I loved Alabama at the same time that I loved bands like Rush, just to kind of put it in perspective. So when you pushed it a little further, you know, I don't know. I heard this song and I went, oh my God, it sounds amazing. Then I started like, I remember like, this is back when you got like a tape, right, for an album. It was a cassette tape. And you opened it up and read the words. So I got the album because I couldn't understand half the words. And when I read the words and I, I really understood, and then I started, oh yeah, that's what he's saying. Oh my God, this is one of the deepest songs that I've ever heard. And it, it's so, so much a message about life. John Adam, who uh, selected this for today's show, and this came out in 91, by the way. This was in the Army when this song came out. Um, he says, there are various interpretations about the song. But to me, it screams, the societal conformity that begins at birth and accelerates in the government schools. When most wake up, they lament the loss of their creative freedom. The unforgiven represents two things. Society as a whole and the individual who can't forgive himself for not freeing his mind sooner. Absolutely. Absolutely. If you watch the video to this, it's like it starts out with this strong, young, virile man clinging and, and scratching and scribing into a wall. And at some point, it even kind of is very almost Christ-like, if you look at it, almost crucifixion-like. I think that's intentional. But the body begins to change. It becomes this old, broken-down man that's still scrawling at this wall. And all the time, there's this clock in the dust and dirt of the wall. Let me give you a few of the words to this song because I think it's, again, it's one of those songs that people don't, like they hear and they kind of sing along with it, but it's kind of like not even the same style of music, but it's like, like Rocket Man. Like there's certain parts of Rocket Man where you ask people what the words are, they have no flipping idea, even though they kind of mouth along with them. So this first verse tells you right what John was saying, right? New blood joins this earth 
and quickly he's subdued. Through constant pain disgrace, the young man learns the rules. With time the child draws in, this whipping boy done wrong. Deprived of all his thoughts, the young man struggles on and on. He's known. Oh, a vow unto his own, that never from this day his will they'll take away. What I've felt, what I've known, never shine though in what I've shown. Never be, never see, won't see what might have been. What I've felt, what I've known, never shine through in what I've shown. Never free, never me. So I dub thee unforgiven. They dedicate their lives to running all his. He tries to please them all. This bitter man he is. Throughout his life the same. He's battled constantly this fight he cannot win. A tired man they see no longer cares. This old man then prepares to die regretfully. That old man here is me. And then there's the, then there's the chorus again. Um, and that's so much the truth about so many people. What this song's really about is not just conformity and the rules, but trying to please others instead of first trying to please yourself. Guys, we've been lied to. We've been taught that trying to please yourself is selfish in the worst way possible. But the people that have made the greatest contributions to the world, if you actually look at that angle, were dramatically selfish people. They were actually dramatically giving people. But if you look at the, th that viewpoint, you have to be able to please yourself. One cannot be a joyous and giving and uplifting husband if one is a miserable prick internally, resenting the fact that you're trying to do everything for somebody else. Same for a father, same for a wife, same for a mother. One cannot be an excited, energetic entrepreneur that does something great for the world if one is truly self-loathing or worried so much about, will I offend somebody? Or what will people think? People that really change the world don't give a flying fuck what other people think. They care about doing the right thing for the right reason based on the knowledge they have now and doing the best that they can for themselves. And in doing so, they can then do great things for other people. You either live that way, or you end up dubbed unforgiven. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
Yeah.